So as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we are experiencing today in this service, even in services across the city, Hospitality Sunday. It's an event, it's the first inaugural event where we are celebrating the unity of the body of Christ and learning more and more how better to practice it. Now notice how I said that. We already have the unity. It's a gift at our conversion. And yet we often fail to experience the fullness of that unity in our practice. And this is one of many things that that we're doing in Bridges of Hope to try to help us to, to better experience that together. We're so blessed, again, to have those from Christian Tabernacle Baptist Church here with us, and we have a contingency over there worshiping with them right now, and and it's just a joy to have you guys with us again, and we'll hear a little bit more from them and how we can pray for their church in a minute. But as we move into that, uh, I chose this passage because this is a passage that actually uh, we, the pastors of the BOH, uh, worked on together in a collaborative not long ago, about a month ago. And it was also a passage that we looked at early on in the inception of Bridges of Hope as we were asking the practical question, you know, how does the scripture teach us uh, to find unity with our differences? Um, and so what you're going to find here is, is an incredible grand experiment. The brothers in BOH, we, we share not race sometimes. We share not politics. We share not demographics and where we were raised, urban, suburban, rural. We share not the same stories of conversion and how we came to Christ and the context for coming to Christ. We share not, again, uh, the traditions and convictions. Baptist, Presbyterian, it means something, right? And there's a difference. What are those differences? How do we share unity with those differences? To varying degrees, we also confess that they're a little bit intimidated by one another. There's a competitiveness. Now, I know you guys don't experience that, but, but pastors make a living by building churches. And, uh, you know, it, it, it matters for no one to show up. And there's a bit of that sort of going on. And how do you, how do you get over all of this? Particularly if you put what I just said into the context of our America, where we have a, a very sordid and sad history of race relations in our country, race-related suffering and pain and persecution, oppression, profiling, counter-profiling, all in it goes. We have a very politically divided country right now where, where we have spiritualized or made politics kind of the new religion, political messiahship, I call it, where we import all kinds of dreams and hopes that are only <laughs> imported to God in Scripture into our political views. We, of course, uh, in our traditions, we have not always acted nicely towards one another. Let's just be honest. And so we are, we're up against a lot. And if anything, I hope and pray that this day would call us to prayer and to never forget to pray. For to be sure that Christians, that Christ desires Christian unity, well, it's probably one of the greatest understatements I could state. John 17, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. This is his last prayer for us, guys. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The Trinitarian unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is meant to inspire and to inform 
the unity of the body of Christ. It don't get deeper than that. That Christians have struggled over the centuries, well, sadly, that's yet another understatement. Even as far back as before the biblical canon was sealed, we know that Christians were struggling mightily. 1 Corinthians 11, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. A kind of concession, this side of heaven that we're not perfect, and in our imperfections, we struggle with the sin of disunity. What is the source then of our disunity? Well, this might surprise you. You could, you could talk about all the social, cultural divides that, that come in between us and become even transcendent to our Christian faith. It's true. Our cultural, political, geopolitical, whatever you want to call it, uh, identities often are treated as superior to our more core and fundamental identity of in Christ. That could be a reason. It could be that there are, of course, different convictions, legitimately so. This side of heaven, we don't believe that that any one of us have a corner on the truth. And we read scripture and we come out of that reading of scripture with different convictions. And, and the scripture wants us to read scripture and to form convictions out of it, Right? But how then do we get on with each other when we have different convictions? And then, of course, different spirituality, the way we practice our faith. You know, some churches do worship this way. Other churches do worship that way. We believe that each of us are informed from Scripture, at least directed from Scripture, as to how we do that worship. But but we come out in very different places, reading the same Scripture. What are we going to do about that? All of those, though, are secondary causes. The primary cause, according to the Scripture, is sin. Now, we're going to be careful to nuance that. It's not a sin to have convictions. It's not a sin to practice according to those convictions. But it's how then we relate to one another, or the lack thereof of relating to one another, that is the Scripture's concern. And so all disunity among Christians is a contradiction of that upon which our being Christians rest. That's a very deep statement. Think about what I'm saying there. It is the character of sin because it repudiates a God-given nature of who we are. It, It would just be unthinkable if you think about it. You can relate this to your family, to share DNA together, to share more than DNA, but a history together to share a lineage together. And so when my child was born and yours, they were born with the gift of unity in the body of family. It was just theirs at birth. It started there with them. And therefore, the rest of their life, they will either live according to that ontological is the big word, that by nature who they are as, in my case, a gram. And they will live according to that in the way in which they treat their brother and their sister, their cousins and their aunts and their aunts, and you know how that goes. There's just this fundamental welcoming them into their lives because of who we are together. We are grams. Trace back to whoever and wherever they are, but we share in this mystical way a real biological DNA. Now, the point of Scripture is there is an even greater, 
more eternal DNA than blood. And that is that spiritual DNA. That's the point, you see, of Christ's message in chapter 17. They are one by the spiritual DNA of in-Christness. And so the point that I'm making here is that that we will approach this passage and we'll understand that, that disunity is a sin against our nature. When I look at my brothers and sisters from Christian Tab, or I look at my brothers and sisters from um, Asia, or from, from Africa, or from in all the places that I see sitting in this room, even in a small congregation like this, I don't share your nationality. I don't share your race. I don't share your story. I don't share, I don't share, I don't share but I do share in Christ the DNA of Christ as that DNA emerges out of the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this mystical communion that we share in Christ where we believe that Christ is not just uh, present in a figurative way, but we believe he's present even in this room as he is present over on, uh, what is it, Dixwell? What is that your, what's, Newhall, yes, Newhall, what's the road? It's Newhall Road. Okay, thank you. It's also a place in town. I know. I didn't know which word you were saying. And so, yeah, right now, right this moment, Christ is present there. He's present here. The greater things of Christ going and ascending into heaven, sending his Holy Spirit, that Christ now might be at two places at one time. That Christ might now have two addresses and more in our city today. And with the, when it comes to these meetings and these communities... We are described not as bodies, plural, of Christ. If you'll notice in the scripture, we are body of Christ. Now, that's the Christian doctrine, at least the apologetic for why even having a day like this. But now we turn to the problems. How then do we do it? Let's get practical here. And herein we come to this great passage in chapter 14 of Romans. Notice three quick observations from the text, if you would. First of all, that we're called to welcome one another is made explicit several times. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. We're going to talk about that weak in faith in a minute. But not to quarrel over opinions. Now, this is interesting. There is a kind of welcoming envisioned here where I don't have to convert him. Whatever him or her is that is dividing them, that is not the condition for their unity that they therefore conform to me and what it is that I believe or say. Not at least in some sense. Put that on the side. We're going to have to come back to that and see what that means. But notice carefully the command. There's one command in this passage over and over. Welcome. Verse 2, the same thing. No, verse, and then the whole passage will end. It goes on and says it a couple of times. And then the passage will end in 7. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Now, that's very interesting, too. Ask yourself now as we move forward in this passage, how has Christ welcomed you? Did he say to you, you've got to get your theology all right before we're welcoming you here? Did he say that to you? Did he say to you, you've got to get your life, you've got to pull yourself up by those bootstraps, and you've got to get it all together you know, I've said this before, it's, it's, you know, like the guy that goes into the gym and then leaves the gym because he's not in shape and he's going to get in shape in order he can come to the gym. A lot of people treat the church like that in, in our union with Christ. That's not the gospel. 
You go to the gym as you go to the church in order to be saved, in order to be put in shape, if you will. You don't wait until you got yourself in shape to go to the gym. That's the nature of the gospel. It's a no judgment zone. Some of those statements, I think that's one of the gyms has that. No judgment zone. Well, that's what the church is and should be. We are here exhorted to welcome one another into each other's lives. The word there could be translated, be hospitable to one another. Show hospitality to one another. And the, and the condition is not that they agree with you on all your opinions, verse 1. The condition is that we do so insofar as Christ greets them and welcomes them and gives them hospitality. Which will beg the question, who does Christ give hospitality to? And that brings you to the gospel. We distinguish two big words here, justification from sanctification. Justification is what is it that justifies us before God, that enables us to be right in a right relationship with God, one where God promises never to reject us, never to condemn us, and gives us eternal life. That's justification, and we're saved by what? Grace, through faith, alone, not of yourselves, says Paul in Ephesians. It's the free gift of God. It's conditioned upon putting your hope and faith in Christ. It's conditioned upon putting ourselves in the mercy of Christ. It's, it's the person who has come to see that they, they have brokenness in their life, they're sinful, they've rejected God, that God rightly, justly could condemn them because we've rejected our maker. We've disrespected the very one who of all that exists has, has right to our respect. And when we did that, we brought upon ourselves condemnation. We, we, we divorced ourselves from the very source of life itself so that the penalty of sin is death. And yet we're restored to God, justified with God, by grace through faith alone. Now, how is it then that we're to show and welcome one another in Christ? On the same condition as Christ does. On the condition of of putting our hope and faith together in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, dedicating our lives to more and more serving him in love. And that service to him in love is directly, of course, related to our love of our neighbor, our Christian neighbor particularly. And so that's what's going on here in the first observation. Welcome means to receive, to make someone feel at home. I'll never forget when we were in Zambia last year, you know, I was teaching over there at the university and having a great time with my brothers and sisters there. And it's an opportunity to remember that, that you know, there's, there's no such thing as African theology and American theology. There's only Christian theology. And we were reuniting under that sort of banner, even though we would form it out very differently. There could certainly be African spirituality, Christian spirituality, and, say, American Christian spirituality and the contextualization of this theology. But but we were working on this. But anyway, we were staying in a hotel or, or there in, in uh, Nadola. And um, somewhere about midway through the, the week, we were over at uh, uh, Lawrence Timfway, who some of you may know, worshipped here for a year, uh, who's over there leading that, that church movement over there. And, and, um, and I was sitting on a couch, and his wife Martha came up, and we were having just a beautiful, wonderful time. There was a whole gathering of the church there. And, 
And, you know, some of y'all know me. I can be a little bit casual. And I'm sitting on the couch with my leg way up on the top of the couch, kind of flopped out like this. And she walks out and says, well, I think you feel welcomed here. And I said, I do. I mean, there was nothing between us. And then she says, well, you know, I think from now on you need just to stay over here. You need to sleep here. We're not going to put you in that hotel anymore. You're just, you're going to be right here. You, you feel, you, you fit right in here. And what was she, what was happening there? It's welcoming. They had made me to feel like part of the family. And I began to express it the way I would in my own family room. I was slouched over looking like a slob. And she loved it. Now, see, that's somehow the image that this word wants to convey to us. That we somehow can make one another feel at home because we are Christians together. A name that is even higher than my surname, Graham. One more eternal, more with a greater legacy, more with a deeper and more rich DNA, because it is rooted in the divinity itself. Think about that. The body of Christ. Christ came and said to to the disciples, you remember, that even faith in Christ, sadly to be sure, might separate a family member. Because of the higher depth of unity and loyalty that the family-to-family member shares in Christ compared to the family-to-family member shares in a surname. That's pretty powerful stuff. Are we really listening to that? And so the first point is just that we are called to welcome one another. And that welcoming is, to put it crassly, just being at home in each other's presence. Without fear of rejection, without having to perform, uh, without worry of what the other person thinks about us. It's a safe zone. It's a no-judgment zone, our relationship together. Then secondly, notice how it is that the seeking to welcome one another will require then great humility. This is so implicit throughout the passage. What really sticks out to both the spirit of, is both that there's going to be this spirit of gracious tolerance, I would even say gracious acceptance, coupled with great convictions. Now here's one of our first misnomers. Many will think, that for us to become one, we got to always agree together. And there have been great ecumenical movements attempting to agree together, and which leads, sadly to say, to a reduction of belief. We would come together, we would try to whittle it down, and we would just keep throwing out every saying that we can't agree together. Here's the thing. As a Christian, we hold the lordship of Christ speaking through Scripture, right? Amen. And as we hold to that idea that we don't, we don't have the privilege to judge Scripture as to what parts of Scripture are important and what parts of Scripture are not important. And so as a Christian, we will always want to approach all Scripture as inspired of God, quoting Timothy, that all of it is profitable, that is relevant to our lives, and we want to hold convictions that are informed by Scripture about anything and all that Scripture will speak about. And Paul here in this passage, you're going to notice, I'm going to show it to you in a minute, is not going to ask people to give up their convictions. He's not going to say, stop having so many convictions. No, that is the message of the devil. To reduce and to reduce and to reduce the Christian faith until the point where it's actually irrelevant. 
Today, our struggle is, I believe, at least particularly in our community here, it is not atheism. It's not agnosticism. It's the perception that Christianity is downright irrelevant. It's just irrelevant. It just doesn't matter. People have learned to get on without it. It doesn't matter. And part of that, I think, is due to the church, who for maybe even the sake of unity, I don't know, just kept whittling away its convictions to a very small amount of convictions to the degree that it's really not very relevant to most of our lives. It doesn't speak into our lives very much. Maybe at best about pie and sky and, and, you know, heaven, which is true. But, you see, that's not where Paul's going to go. Notice then this amazing tension between both this acceptance of one another without yet minimizing the convictions, even differing convictions of one another. So, for instance, you'll note that no less than eight times If you were reading the passage in the Greek, this little word krino would show up. That's the word judgment. Eight times the word judgment is used in one chapter. That gets your attention. Now, sadly, if you're reading the English, you wouldn't notice that because different words will be used or translated to give you a nuance. But it's the same exact word. But more to the present point, it's used both as a negative and a positive. Notice, for instance, on the one hand... There is the admonishment to receive or welcome one another that evidently were not being welcomed due to being judgmental concerning their spirituality. He says, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge, there it is, him who eats. Interestingly, there in that little parallel sentence, judgment and despising are used in synonymous parallelism there. It kind of gives you the sense of what it means to be judgmental. It's to despise someone. It's to reject someone. It's to look down upon someone. Judgmentalness. He says there's no room for that kind of judgmentalness in the body of Christ. And yet notice, he he, addresses it to both parties. Those who eat, don't judge those who don't eat. Those who don't eat, don't judge those who do eat. Now what's he saying? He goes on. Why are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? You're that? Your brother. Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So on the one hand, he uses this word as a negative virtue. But then on the other hand, clearly, Paul makes it clear that we are to make judgments. Verse 5. One person esteems, that word in the Greek is krino, Judges. One person judges one day as better than another, while another judges all days alike. Now listen to what he says. He doesn't say, oh, those are the non-essential topics of Christian faith. Those are those, you know, let's, 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 let's get it all down to the simple stuff. It's all about the simple stuff. That's the way ecumenism has gone over the last 50 years. And it's resulted in a very irrelevant and weakened church. That's not where Paul goes. Look what we'll say. Each one should be fully convicted in his own mind. That word convicted, he ought to have a conviction, a a conscious, intentional judgment about what it is that this person feels is right and wrong. Paul is very clear here. 
He tells them not to be judgmental, while he tells them and, avert and esteems them for making judgments as to what is right and wrong from the Scripture. And to be absolutely clear, these convictions are judgments. Paul clearly assumes that the judgments concerning spirituality can and should distinguish even between, and the words that you'll see here, did you notice it? He will use words like weak convictions and strong convictions. Paul, in this very passage, is even going to concede to weak convictions and strong convictions. That is, ones that are more true to Scripture, more mature, more developed, however you want to describe it, versus those who are less mature, less developed, however you describe it. Now, that's the second point. But again, we do so while what? We make these judgments while bearing with those who don't agree. Notice verse 1 again, we who are strong, and again, that begs the question, doesn't it? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, who are the strong? Who are the strong? That kind of begs the question, right? Well, Paul's going to really make a point, a very, very important point. And how is that? That he's going to notice that he makes that statement and he's making it on behalf of two parties. So let me back up a little bit. What's happening here started with a racial problem. There was racial reconciliation that is in the backdrop of this whole thing. You go, huh, where's that? Well, see, this is all about the Hebrews and the Greeks. Time does not permit me to get you into that relationship. But it was a very, very tense, sordid history of a relationship. They would call each other dogs in the literature. They despised one another, these Hebrews and these Greeks. And out of their context they would discern and read Scripture, and as those who are converted from their previous context, spiritual context, whether it be Judaism, Old Testament Judaism, or whether it be paganism in the context of the Greeks, they would then begin to work out their convictions as to what it means to truly convert to Christianity, and yet they would work it out in different ways because they had different there's a kind of different context of relevancy. So let me get into that for you a little bit. Here we have a situation where with this Hebrew and Greek context, Paul is now saying that from your context, you view this person as weak. But he tells them, but you ought to what? Welcome them as brothers in Christ. From your context, Hebrew, you consider these Greeks weak in this particular conviction. But I'm admonishing you to welcome them, to make them feel at home with you in Christ. Now, you see, it's getting a little... It, does this, isn't this great? At least the Scripture knows what really it takes. If you've ever tried to do uh, you know, reconciliation and ecumenical uh, discussion between churches and traditions, you know that Paul knows what he's talking about. You're dealing with the real stuff that's on the ground here. The messy stuff, the messy stuff. But notice how he'll do it. On the Greek context, he does it both. He, he gives them both. Uh, uh, he gives them both some attention here. So, on the Greek side, verse four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no existence and that there is no god but one. 
For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom all things exist, etc., etc. He says to the Greek, look, guys, this thing about converting from pagans, therefore requiring that you no longer eat foods that were offered to pagan gods, he said, honestly, that's a weak position. Because True conversion would recognize that the God that you worshipped was a God of your own imagination. It doesn't exist. And how, therefore, can a God that doesn't exist pervert you if you eat that which was falsely offered to that which did exist, that doesn't really exist? You follow that? But if you understand conversion, and particularly in contextualization context, you would recognize, too, though, that Paul, as he's going to say later, says, but hey... If not eating meats to idols is something that you do that enables you to distance yourself even from the memory of your idolatry and of all the associations of that memory that in a way that could compromise you and your Christian faith, that tempts you in some manner to go back to those days, then don't eat that meat. You see, that's what he's going to say to the Greeks. It's a weak view, but what made it weak, listen is that they were imposing their view on the Hebrews. They were acting like their view of working out their conversion, given their context, necessarily applies to everybody, which would, the effect of which was to do this. Listen, they were asking the Jews to become Greeks in order to become Christians. That's what we do all too often, and we don't know it. Whether it's race reconciliation, whether it's class reconciliation, whether it's nationality reconciliation, in Christ we often don't distinguish the elements of our faith, what our church fathers used to call the elements of faith as distinguished from the forms that those elements manifest themselves in. And so when we do that, we start associating a certain form that to us in our context would mean to deny this element We start associating that form with denying an element when for these folks, that form doesn't actually deny that element. It actually reinforces it in their context. That's what he's saying. That to you Greek brothers, don't you understand? For you, conversion out of the context of pagan worship, where in that pagan worship these foods were sacred, it might well be wise for you to abstain from those foods lest you be tempted to go back into paganism. Now, some of you know I did not grow up in a Christian home, and you know that I was well on my way within the DNA of my family to be an alcoholic. Even before I was out of high school, I had a, uh, you know, a pint under my seat drinking it after football practice. And when I became a Christian at 20, the first thing the Lord put on my mind was no more drinking. And it was a very symbolic moment for me as I'm driving down about 60 miles an hour. I had learned the art of flipping my can over the car and hitting a cop sign. I said, oh, this will be the last time I ever do this. And splash on the the, the, uh, stop sign. And for 14 years, not not even a sip. It was the right thing for me to do. I needed to truly separate myself from my history in order for me to be converted and to experience the fullness of my conversion. Now, what Paul would say to me here would say, Preston, that is a good thing for you to do. But 
unless by good and necessary inference from Scripture, you can show that having a beer, a glass of wine, or doing whatever, you know, drinking any alcohol is absolutely necessarily unbiblical, you have no right to impose your form of conversion on this other person and therefore keep that as, and here's the key, to therefore not allow them to feel welcomed in your presence. That's the key. You may even disagree with them doing it. But to, to let that, drinking a beer, having a glass of wine, whatever it is, let that come between you and their brother in Christ for whom di- Christ died, Paul is incensed. You can't do that. That's impo- You're asking him to become you in your history in order to be saved and to enjoy the fellowship of the unity of the body of Christ. Now, Paul doesn't just pick on the Greeks. Notice carefully. The food. He's dealing here with these food issues. And for Hebrews, as you remember, you know, they, they didn't have the same food issues. Okay? But then, right there in verse 5, he turns to the Hebrew. Oh, they don't get out easy either. For them, they were these Sabbath laws. All these Sabbath laws that that they practice out of Old Testament Judaism. And I don't mean just the Lord's Day Sabbath that we do now. I mean many and various Sabbath day laws that would impact their weeks, their days, their months, even their years. And they were f- finding those practices very helpful as a discipline of life, even now as a Christian. What does Paul do? He does the same thing to them that he did to the Greeks. He said, look, it's fine for your Hebrew conversion... Insofar as there is continuity between the old and new, there is a way in which you can continue to practice your Sabbaths and do so in a way that is Christ-centered, and therefore I allow you to do it. But I don't allow you to, to despise the Greek converts who don't practice Sabbath laws. Same thing was with circumcision, if you know the history of the New Testament. Big wars going on about this. Now, I want you to put that into your life right now. Just stop for a minute. This has been heavy, heavy, heavy stuff, I know. But I want you to stop and ask yourself, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for you? Ask yourself the question, what are you requiring of another person who professes faith in Christ? What do you require for them to feel comfortable around you, for them to feel at home with you, for them not to feel despised or judged before you? Does it require that you agree with everything they, believe, they do and, and say as a Christian? Nothing in Scripture says that. Does it require that you accept them after the pattern of Christ's acceptance of them? Absolutely. How comfortable, at home, welcome, accepted does Christ make you feel with all of your bad theology, some of which you don't even know yet, It says, while we were as yet sinners, he died for us. He didn't wait for us to stop being sinners. How did Christ accept you? You see the humility word? To humble ourselves and say, you know, how could I possibly, possibly raise a standard of of acceptance and hospitality to a Christian brother that exceeds the standard of Jesus Christ to me? Think about how vastly greater are the differences between me and Jesus Christ. Preston Graham, Jesus Christ. Think about how much, in comparison to him, how much more I sin. 
how great of a sinner I'd be by comparison. How, how unorthodox of a thinker I'd be in comparison. He is seated in the heavenly places, perfected in, in the heavens with a perfect orthodoxy, with a perfect life. My distance between him and me due to my own weakness of faith convictions or weakness of faith practices, so far exceeds the distance between me and any of you in this room that it would be an act of abstract arrogance for me to ask you to conform more to my likeness of holiness or beliefs in order for you to feel right at home in my life. That's what this means. Now, how do we get there? I'm going to close just real briefly with with this. The interesting thing about this passage is that over and over he reminds us, one, that we, we reconcile, that we extend hospitality to one another as Christ reconciled and extended hospitality to us based on grace through faith alone. That's one. But two, he reminds us that we are not each other's judge, ultimately. That was a big thing for me as a pastor. Not as a brother to brother, but as a pastor, I had to also learn that even though it's my responsibility to help shepherd the flock of God, to make judgments about you, honestly, and to discern how you are and where you are going and to shepherd you to green pastures theologically and practically. It's what you want me to do, right? But that's a very different thing than then imposing any kind of a barrier between you and me personally. And the reason why I can do that is very much, if I do it at all, and I pray I do, or at least try to, is because of the next thing. He reminds me that I'm not the judge. That I'm a shepherd, but I'm not the judge. That's different. And that, therefore, it's not personal. For you to disagree with me, or not be like me, or me like you and all that, we cannot personalize that. Because see, that is then to ask you to be me, to be a Christian. Whether I'm Greek or Hebrew, white or black, whatever it is. So number one is we have to have humility. Uh, the humility to, to, on the one hand, uh, follow the pattern of Christ in the way he accepts one another, and to remember that we are not the judge of another, not ultimately such that it should ever cause tension between you and me. Number two, that was one. Number two is, is therefore, we need to start to listen to one another and to learn about each other. Did you hear, what you, did you hear that in the story here in Hebrews, I mean in, in uh, Romans? What if the Greek or the Hebrew had taken the time to sit down with his Greek brother and say, I don't get it. You, you, you've imposed faith plus abstaining from food. That's the way it appeared to a Hebrew guy from a distance. And if they could have heard the Greek guy come say, man, no, man, I, I've never seen it like that. For me, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I've, I have this habitual pagan worship in me. I've been doing it for years. I can't just leave the pagan God and continue to do things that smell and taste and, and act like the pagan spirituality that I used to live. I need to get away from that spirituality. And therefore, I'm going to flee that spirituality. Even if it's fine for you to do it, it's not fine for me. 
You see what just happened? We're listening to each other's stories, getting to know each other personally. Before we make judgments, listening. I can't tell you how important this I Heart New Haven Day is coming up in a couple of weeks. Because what we do in Bridges of Hope is very strategically, we will, we will make sure that every group, if we can, is equally staffed, if you will, by different members of different churches. And I heard stories last year and the year before over and over from you. How they got to know someone and blank became my friend. Bingo. You want to go forward in race relations. You want to go forward in class relations. You want to go forward in all the other relations, national relations. We need to start. It's got to be one-on-one. My experience in desegregation uh, Atlanta, in the era of desegregation, one of the first schools to do it in the city, in the inner city, was the school I went to, is we learned real quick that we've got to personalize this whole experiment. And what I mean by that is those of us, particularly on the football team, just like that movie, the whatever it is that's, uh, you know, that, that was on, we had to get to need each, know, know each other as persons, not as objects. Not as a black man and a white man, but as Billy Bob and Billy B. <laughs> Make that up. And Billy Bob and Billy B would sit down, we began to realize, you know when you talk to each other, you find out a couple of things. You found out, one, that everybody's got a story. Everybody has a story. Everybody's got a history. And when you find that out, you begin to understand a whole lot more how that story gets mixed up in their Christianity in a good way. Or even a bad way. It's personal now. And number two, every person you'll meet has a noble dream for their life. I said a noble one. One that you would admire. Whether it's a mother who loves her child whether it's a father who wants to, to, to provide for the family, whether it's a child that wants to get himself or herself out of poverty, whatever the noble dream, if you listen, they will have a noble dream. And you will be surprised how that's going to, it's just got to get one-on-one and personal. You know, you can have your big meetings and rallies and all of this stuff. And in all of those contexts, is, it, perhaps politically they need to happen, but, but in all of those contexts, we're still objectifying each other. We're, we're doing that. We're doing this profiling, both sides, profiling. When we get one-on-one, the profile just gets blown to smithereens. Praise God. It just gets blown to smithereens. All of a sudden, we're people. And as Christians, we find out that we have the same Christian Bible, reading it the same, and we desire to follow it. So that's number two, make it personal. And then number three, it's so, so, so important that as we make it personal, that we also listen, because everyone has fears. Everyone has fears. And those fears drive much of what we do. So I'll end with what happened a week, about, about a, month, a half a month ago. I was leading a collaborative on this very topic with a group of pastors here in the city in this whole BOH effort. And we decided to take some issues that we disagree on, and this issue was prophesying. What, how do we reconcile? How do we deal with the issue of prophesying? And as we did it, what was cool is, I guess you could say from the standpoint of this passage, is one, we, we recognized that we had some very different opinions sitting in that room about what prophesying is what's valid or not valid, we had convictions. But two, 
we recognize that our convictions and the way that they formed themselves were very much reacting to different fears. Very different fears. Some were fearing the oppressive power of the church and imposing rules and laws on people from Scripture that aren't in Scripture and therefore were very adamant that all revelation ceases in Scripture. The other comes at it from a perspective of a church that's, made, that's shown itself to be irrelevant and impractical and wants to go beyond just giving these abstract truths and needing to have God speak into their lives as to how then to live their life. Both parties could say we concede both those fears. And we went from here and all the straw men that we had in each other's minds about each other's views to about here. And we're right here now. <laughs> now, we are much closer. And it won't matter to me, though, this is the point, and them, that we ever go here on this. What matters is that we are accepted one to another based on faith alone in Jesus Christ. Our convictions matter, and if you know these pastors, we all hold them strongly. There's not a pastor in there that's a theological wimp and says, I don't really care. And we can go at it. At breakfast, lunch, and dinner, when we have our retreat, we're always doing it. But within that, we started the whole thing two years ago with one retreat. It was almost a revival for all of us. Because all we did on that retreat is we did those first two things first. We heard each other's stories. We listened to each other's fears. And when we had done that first, then we got on the theological topics. Then we get on the whatever other issues are there. It was brother to brother, sister to sister. It was lover to lover in Christ. Please pray for our city and for what we're doing here. Praise be to God. Amen.